Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. I've seen the lights go out on Broadway. I saw the ruins at my feet. You know, we almost didn't notice it. We'd seen it all the time on 42nd Street. They burned the churches up in Harlem, like in that Spanish Civil War. The flames were everywhere, but no one really cared. It always burned up there before. It's rarely a single incident that leads to catastrophe. Take the subject of this podcast series, David Berkowitz. He didn't just decide one day to become a serial killer driven by a demon to terrorize a city. It was a complicated childhood, a head injury, bullying by his peers, tremendous guilt about his birth mother's death that turned out to be a terrible lie, psychedelic drug use, involvement with a satanic cult, and a slow but steady divorce from reality in the form of a mental break that resulted in a maniacal killing spree that left six young people dead, seven injured, and a city of seven million people in fear for their lives. Along those lines, we have the events of July 13th, 1977. An act of God outage, lightning, buying too much power from outside sources, low oil pressure, all reasons, according to Con Ed Chairman Charles Luce, for the Con Ed power system to collapse like dominoes, causing a blackout that was supposedly all but impossible. At 8.34 p.m., there was a lightning strike in Buchanan, New York. Buchanan is a small village of 2,000 people, nestled along the Hudson River Valley, about 40 miles north of Manhattan. Famous for their beautiful forests and rolling hills, Buchanan is also home to the Buchanan South substation, a critical distribution junction for Consolidated Edison, the power company commonly known as Con Ed that delivers electrical power for the greater New York City area. This lightning strike in Buchanan tripped two major circuit breakers in the substation, where a loose locking nut, seriously, a 10-cent part at any hardware store, a loose locking nut combined with a reset procedure that didn't respond quickly enough, prevented those breakers from reclosing. What all that means is that the Buchanan South substation couldn't do its job. And that job was converting 345,000 volts of electricity from Buchanan's other claim to fame, the Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant. Then there were two additional lightning strikes in the next 20 minutes. One hitting high-voltage power lines running from Indian Point, effectively rendering that plant useless and thereby overloading two other major transmission lines. The third lightning strike hit the Sprain Brook substation in Yonkers, knocking out two additional critical transmission lines. These incidents caused what's known as a cascading series of failures that exposed critical failures in design, procedures, backup systems, and safety protocols. In the 40 minutes that elapsed after that third lightning strike to critical electrical infrastructure, the stability of the entire system began to rapidly degrade. Stations from New Jersey to Connecticut to upstate New York couldn't synchronize, 
turbines began to shut down, conductors overheated. And by the time Con Ed began to reduce output by intentionally shutting off service to specific regions, it was too late. Just after 9.28 p.m., the biggest generator in New York City, a 990-megawatt behemoth affectionately named Big Alice, shut down by design to protect herself from overload. When Big Alice shut down, the city went with her. Welcome back to The Devil Within, A Season in Hell. You're listening to Episode 6. I've seen the lights go out on Broadway. There was a period of time in Los Angeles in the early 90s that saw a truly catastrophic series of events, both natural and man-made, that had many residents wondering if it was the end times. In the span of 24 months, the City of Angels saw the Rodney King riots. Once again, much of South Central Los Angeles looks something like a war zone. There are streets barricaded, there, are, there is widespread looting, there are fires, at least 40 separate significant fires in South Central Los Angeles, more than 150 all total since uh, about 7.30 this evening. There is now in effect what we are told is called a major tactical alert, a major tactical alert by LA Then the Malibu firestorm the next October. Dozens of homes have been destroyed, more are threatened. Six people have been severely burned and three firefighters have been injured. A Coast Guard cutter has moved off Malibu shore to help with coastal evacuations if those are needed. And McDermott has more. Followed by devastating mudslides in the rainy season the following winter. And it was all capped off by the Northridge earthquake in January of 1994. It just felt like a uh, something hit side of the house. And then it just started rolling and got stronger and stronger and the house starts shaking back and forth. As you, as you look out your window, it's probably pitch dark right now. Oops, hang on one second. This is a very sharp aftershock that just hit us right now. Our whole house, which is a two-story house, Calabasas is really shook. The cherry on top came six months later when the world was transfixed by the slow-speed chase involving O.J. Simpson, followed by the trial of the century. 911, what are you reporting? This is, this is AC. I have OJ in the car. Okay, where are you? Please, I'm coming up the five freeway. Okay. Right now, we all, we all okay, but you got to tell the police to just back off. He's still alive, and he got a gun to his head. Okay, okay hold on a minute. Monica? Hey, I was there for all of it, and it was indeed a crazy time to be a Los Angelino. But I imagine that would pale in comparison to those 13 months that the son of Sam held New York City hostage, a city that was already riding a knife's edge of anxiety, corruption, and bankruptcy. Now, imagine the lights going out. It was just after 9.30 p.m. when the streetwalkers in Times Square were suddenly doused in darkness, when thousands of passengers on graffiti-scarred trains became stuck, often in tunnels. There was absolutely no panic, and you'd never know that there was any kind of emergency. At first, in much of the city, there was a spirit of calm resilience, civilians directing traffic. Surgery moved outside at Brooklyn Jewish Hospital to utilize car batteries as backup power. With her own power generation facility, the Statue of Liberty remained lit. But the tired, the poor, the huddled masses she beckoned soon became restless, agitated, and violent. The situation here in Brownsville was described as anarchy, war, rioting. It was terrible. I could see from my window there, everybody looting, taking furniture, everything. The blackout of 1977 was by no means unprecedented. Just 12 years earlier, on November 9, 1965, a hydroelectric power station near Niagara Falls overloaded and caused a series of failures that amounted to the largest blackout in U.S. history, affecting parts of Ontario, Canada, and 11 northeast states from New Jersey to New Hampshire. All of New York was in the dark for more than 13 hours, lit only by the full moon, made all the more brilliant by the complete lack of light pollution. Incredibly, NYPD records show 
that the night of the 1965 blackout had the lowest amount of reported crime of any night in the city's history since record-keeping began in the 17th century. The question of where were you when the lights went out became a good-natured conversation starter and a way to celebrate a shared experience with fellow New Yorkers. There was even a blackout baby boom reported in area hospitals nine months later. But a lot can change in 12 years, and by 1977, New York City was a very different place. At Shea Stadium in Queens, at approximately 9.30 p.m., Lenny Randall, second baseman for the New York Mets, was at the plate in the bottom of the sixth inning when the stadium and the city was plunged into darkness. And the lights have just gone off here at Shea Stadium. We've had a power failure here at Shea Stadium. The lights are all off with the exception of the emergency lights. Randall was quoted as saying, God, I'm gone. I thought for sure he was calling me home. I thought that was my last at bat. Across Queens and Brooklyn, west to Staten Island, north through Manhattan and into the Bronx and beyond, the city was a seething ball of anxiety, fear, and restlessness. Weighed down by a years-long economic downturn, disenchanted by governmental corruption and a lack of basic services, and highlighted by the fact that a murderer had been on the loose for almost a year, New York City erupted into an orgy of violence, looting, arson, and mayhem. Eyewitness News has been told that 12,000 police are on the street compared to the normal 2,500. By 9.30, over 3,000 people had been arrested for looting and disorderly conduct. 250 state troopers are in the city for traffic control. One policeman has been shot and wounded. 87 suffered other injuries. There have been 40 firemen injured in 650 fires. There is 65% of the service on the subways right now. No more is expected for the morning rush hour. There's trouble on the tracks at Amtrak, no trouble at Conrail. We are standing by for reports from the members of the Eyewitness News team at various locations, and right now Peter Bannon is standing by live on Fifth Avenue. Peter, what's going on? This episode, as all episodes in this series, opened with lyrics from Billy Joel songs. This one was from the 1976 hit Miami 2017 with the subtitle seen the lights go out on Broadway. Written prophetically before the blackout, the song envisioned a future apocalypse inspired by the decay and financial ruin that a younger Billy Joel sadly witnessed after returning to his home city following a few years living in Los Angeles playing at a piano bar. He couldn't believe what he saw, but I'm sure even he couldn't have foreseen the level of destruction that would be visited upon New York on the evening of July 13th. Brooklyn was hit particularly hard, with the neighborhoods of Crown Heights and Bushwick sustaining heavy damage, including 35 blocks of Broadway, the Broadway in Brooklyn that separates Bushwick from Bedford-Stuyvesant. 35 blocks of Broadway were destroyed, with over 130 stores looted and 45 burned to the ground. The carnage soon spread citywide, it was as if a release valve had been opened and years of simmering frustrations were finally being expressed. No borough was spared. The NYPD was overwhelmed, as was the fire department and all other emergency services and first responders. There were four homicides, three deaths by fire in the more than 1,000 reported arson events, and more than 1,600 stores were looted. The events of that night resulted in the largest mass arrest in the city's history with 3,776 individuals that were eventually crammed into severely overcrowded cells, further straining an already crippled correctional system. Total damages were estimated at over $300 million, or a billion and a half in today's money. The city had finally broken. On the world stage, exposing the flaws, the failures of leadership, the fiscal irresponsibility, and the brutal, violent anger of its own citizens. We've been needlessly subjected to a night of terror in many communities that have been wantonly looted and burned. 
Tonight, the mayor says he wants convicted looters punished to the fullest extent of the law. I'll say just what I said uh, on the eyewitness uh, knows. Nobody can say that under no circumstances will there be uh, power failures because power is, is generated with machines operated by human beings, and there simply is no way. So there's no way we can have a foolproof system? There's no way, and there's no country or no utility in the United States or abroad that has an absolutely foolproof system. There's no such thing. Two years earlier, in August of 1975, New Jersey's favorite son, Bruce Springsteen, released his legendary album, Born to Run. The second track on that record is a nine-and-a-half-minute masterpiece called Jungle Land. In the haunting final verse, Springsteen's lyrics would also prove prophetic. Outside the streets on fire in a real death waltz, between what's flesh and what's fantasy. And the poets down here don't write nothing at all. They just stand back and let it all be. And in the quick of the night, they reach for their moment and try to make an honest stand. But they wind up wounded not even dead, tonight in Jungle Land. No one is exactly sure, except Berkowitz himself, what the killer was doing on the night of the blackout. It's difficult to imagine that he wasn't out hunting, and once he realized what was going on and the pandemonium of the evening, it's even more difficult to imagine that he wouldn't take advantage of such a rare occurrence and just go on a rampage. But strangely, there were no reports of death by shooting with a 44 caliber weapon on the night of July 13th. But still, the monster remained. The city was still cleaning up, but the ticking clock was unmistakable. The Son of Sam had issued a stark warning for the residents of New York. He was planning something for the anniversary of the shooting death of Donna Loria. July 29th was just two weeks away. We're going to jump ahead for a minute here, because what he actually did was tragic if a few days late, but what he had planned was truly psychotic and, perversely, ahead of its time. Mass shootings in the United States are a relatively new scourge on the American people. In 1977, in fact, there had been only three highly publicized what we would consider mass shootings. The first was in 1949 in Camden, New Jersey, that left 13 dead. The second, and arguably most famous for putting terrible events like these on the map, was the University of Texas Tower shooting that claimed 17 lives in 1966, and the Easter Sunday Massacre of 1975 in Hamilton, Ohio. Maybe it was this shooting in 1975 that inspired Berkowitz because, in January of 76, he bought himself a Commando Arms 45 caliber semi-automatic rifle at the Empire Gun and Coin Shop in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. Why did he purchase such a powerful, deadly weapon? After his arrest, Berkowitz revealed to law enforcement that he had planned on driving out to Long Island somewhere in the Hamptons, to a very popular disco club, and then opening fire on the dance floor. He fully planned on being killed by police, which he was okay with, as long as he was able to take a few with them, he said. But that was only one of two options. His second idea that he wanted to use his new machine gun for concerned the World Trade Center. This plan involved placing an explosive device either in the lobby or underground parking garage, then creating some kind of ground-level sniper's nest. He would then remote detonate the device and just mow down civilians as they fled the building in a panic. Truly the delusions of a sick mind. Gratefully, neither of those two diabolical plans came to fruition because, as we now know, Berkowitz couldn't resist the hunt. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of people these days are charging into the new year, full of confidence and passion and big ideas and gym memberships and diet plans. And maybe that's you. 
And it's okay if it's not you. Because a lot of us are still searching, searching for that better version of ourselves. The new year can be a difficult time. As I've said many times over the past few seasons of this show, I've been in therapy on and off for my entire adult life. And one of the main things I've learned is that massive change happens in small steps. Maybe ditch the extreme resolutions and take a small step towards a better you. BetterHelp offers online therapy. After they learn a little bit about you, you'll get matched with a licensed therapist for sessions that fit your schedule. BetterHelp is flexible, convenient, and if you're not happy with the therapist you're paired with, you can switch for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit betterhelp.com slash devilwithin today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash devilwithin. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Friday, July 29th, 1977. Exactly a year since the fatal shooting of Donna Loria announced the arrival of a new breed of danger on the streets of New York. A serial killer. The effects of the previous 12 months could be seen almost everywhere. Women with natural dark hair had taken to the bleach blonde look. Many young brown-haired women in Queens are worried about their safety because of the 44 caliber killer. I interviewed one of them. Yeah, you have to be careful. You have to watch where you go now. You know, how late you stay out and... Have you, restricted you, you, have you restricted your own movements? Yeah. You don't go out as much as you used to? No. And I'm always with somebody, you know. That, I, you know, I know I'm going to be taken right home or whatever, you know. What about your friends? Are they doing the same thing? Yes. <laughs> Even when they don't have long hair. You know, same thing. It scares you. Police in the East Bronx and Northern Queens were on constant patrol. Discotheques, coffee shops, restaurants, nightclubs, anywhere young people congregated, were nearly empty. One man had made the city bend to his will, and there seemed no end in sight. None of the victims were connected in any way the police could discern. A killer who took lives at random was a detective's worst nightmare. And even though the study of serial killers was still in its infancy, law enforcement at least had an idea of what they were dealing with. He was organized. An organized killer comes prepared. They have the murder weapon. They have the ability to use it. They have the discipline to pick an environment that allows for a successful kill as well as a means of escape. And they have a reasonable ability to leave as little evidence behind as possible. That was Berkowitz to a T. A disorganized killer operates very differently crime of passion, spur of the moment, using whatever tools are available and with no real plan for escape. Those types of killers don't usually last too long on the street. They make too many mistakes that allow police to close in relatively quickly. On July 29th, David was out hunting, but so were the police. The youth of the city were strongly cautioned to stay home. And the ones that didn't saw police everywhere they went. And if the warning wasn't enough, police cruisers circling every club, every disco, and every makeout spot in the Bronx and Queens certainly was. Club owners across the city universally agreed Friday, July 29th was the slowest night in the history of the New York City club scene. And maybe that's why. The organized nature of David Berkowitz, I mean. Maybe that's why the evening of the 29th came and went without incident. He wasn't impulsive. He wasn't rash. He wasn't desperate. If he'd proven anything over the previous 12 months, it's that he was exceedingly patient and careful. 
Oh, how he had wanted to make a statement on his wicked anniversary. But the signs just didn't appear. Nobody's perfect, and sometimes even the most organized among us falter. David felt as though he had failed. He bragged to police and the great Jimmy Breslin about making a show of the anniversary, and nothing. He was embarrassed. He had driven around for hours on Friday night and found only lonely streets and empty clubs. Not a sign to be had from his dark master. It had been more than a month since his last attack, and incredibly, frustratingly, both had survived. And it would be August soon. How long would he have to wait? The next night, Saturday the 30th, he decided he would wait no more. Four weeks of circling the same neighborhoods in the Bronx and Queens weren't getting him any results, so he decided to make a major shift in his practices. A decision that would be the first in that familiar cascading series of events that would ultimately lead to his downfall. He decided to go to Brooklyn. On the southwest edge of Brooklyn, not far from Coney Island, is the neighborhood of Bath Beach. Situated along Gravesend Bay, at one time the community was a popular seaside retreat for wealthy New Yorkers. Today, there isn't even a beach in Bath Beach, because in the 1930s, the beach was paved over to accommodate the Belt Parkway, a public works project to create a semicircular highway that hugs the shoreline and connects Brooklyn and Queens. Today, Bath Beach is a working-class community with a mixed ethnic population of Chinese, Middle Eastern, Russian, and Italian immigrants. In 1977, it wasn't quite the melting pot it is today. In fact, it was mostly white and Italian-American, but the working-class distinction still stood. It was a safe, quiet neighborhood with wide streets, beautiful parks, and more open space than you see most other places in the boroughs. If Brooklyn was Berkowitz's first mistake that night, the neighborhood of Bath Beach was the second. It was a nice neighborhood, as the others had been, but it was more open. There were parks, people out walking along well-lit streets, even light traffic at all hours of the night. But still, it's plain to see that Berkowitz had become desperate for a kill. And so, he arrived in Bath Beach and began his hunt. At around two in the morning on Sunday, July 31st, 1977, David Berkowitz slowly drove past a car parked along the Brooklyn waterfront, about a mile south of the Verrazano Bridge, a mighty span and engineering marvel that connects Brooklyn with Staten Island. There were young people in the car. Was this the first sign? Wait, that girl's blonde. Or is she? David wasn't sure, so he drove around the block so he could make another pass and get a better look. But when he returned, the car was empty. Defeated, he was about to drive away when he saw, out of the corner of his eye, the young couple walk into nearby Bath Beach Park. He watched as they sat on the swings and talked. <sighs> okay, so now what? Normally, when the signs weren't clear, David would just move on, as he had hundreds of times over the previous 12 months. But he was committed to this night, committed to right now. He kept his cool as he drove around the block for the third time and just parked at the first place he saw. All thoughts of a sign from his master had apparently been abandoned. He got out of his car and slowly entered the park. After a few moments, the young woman on the swings noticed him and told her boyfriend that she was scared and they should leave. In fact, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Violante weren't boyfriend-girlfriend. They were a couple of 20-year-old kids on their first date. Violante sold men's clothing and Stacy was a secretary. They had recently met and found a mutual attraction to each other. They'd gone to the movies, 
a new science fiction release that was dominating the summer box office. You may have heard of it. It was called Star Wars. And then they decided to keep the evening going by taking a drive to the water and parking along a well-known lover's lane. There was a brilliant full moon that night, so they decided to take a stroll through the park and get to know each other sitting on the swings. Then Stacy saw a strange man watching them from the shadows and told Robert it was time to go. They quickly returned to Robert's car, parked on the corner of Shore Drive and Bay 14th Street. At 2.50 a.m., witnesses described a man in his 20s, about 5 feet 8 inches tall, thickly built with dark hair, emerge from the cover of the park and walk up to the car from behind. One witness watched all this from his rearview mirror. This unknown man calmly walked up to the passenger window, drew a weapon from his pocket, assumed a crouching position, and fired with both hands. Four shots directly into the car. Robert Violante was struck in the right side of the head. The bullet passed behind his nose, through his sinus cavity, and exploded his left eye. He would survive his injuries, but be left effectively blind, as his right eye was also seriously damaged in the attack. Stacy Moskowitz was shot twice in the head and would die almost two days later, despite heroic efforts by a skilled team of surgeons. The killer's eighth attack in just over 12 months came on this lonely street in Brooklyn. Police poured over the car where the young couple was shot and said fragments of bullets showed they were fired from the same 44 caliber pistol that had wounded six other New Yorkers and left five dead. Aided by light from a full moon, three or four eyewitnesses said they got a look at the killer. They described him as 25 to 35 years old, about 5'8 or a little taller. The victims were 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz, wounded critically by a shot in the head. And her date, Robert Violante, also hit in the head. Doctors said he was blinded in one eye. Relatives and friends kept a vigil at the hospital. Anthony Robinson was a friend of Miss Moskowitz. She was a wonderful person. And she's, she's always thinking of others. She worried about this guy? Excuse me? She, wor she wasn't worried, you know, because she says, you know, I got blonde hair and, you know. I told her, I don't know how many times to be careful. Stacy's parents had warned her against going out while there was a killer on the loose. But she told them not to worry. Son of Sam stayed in the Bronx and Queens. He never came to Brooklyn. Miss Moskowitz died of massive of brain damage. Her mother referred to that. And she would have been a vegetable had she lived. And my daughter loved life too much. And she would never have wanted it that way. And she lived with dignity, and she died with dignity. But most important, of the people, that an animal should snuff away a life of a young girl, blind a young boy, and has killed others, and will probably go on killing. An animal like this has to be caught. That night, Detective John Falatico was given the Moskowitz-Violante shooting. But he was ordered to report to the 60th Precinct in Coney Island first. Why the 60th? That was the headquarters of Operation Omega. When Falatico arrived, despite the hour, there was tremendous activity in the station. A Code 44 had been issued in the aftermath of another suspected Son of Sam shooting, and tips were flooding in on the phone lines. Plus, the radios were busier than usual, with task force detectives calling in to report that more than a dozen potential suspects that the NYPD had been closely following could be cleared because they were nowhere near Bath Beach at the time of the shooting. As per Omega Protocol, Falatico was given two weeks to investigate the shooting as a normal homicide. But if he couldn't close the case, it would be turned over to Operation Omega. Four days later, on August 4, 1977, a call came into the tip line from a woman named Cecilia Davis. Miss Davis had been walking her dog in the early morning hours of July 31st when she noticed a patrol officer 
ticketing a car for parking too close to a fire hydrant. A half a block later, she remembered a young man with dark hair cross in front of her and enter the park. But not before he looked at her intently, studying her. Miss Davis noticed that he held a, quote, dark object in his right hand. She became frightened and began to run home. Moments later, she heard four shots ring out. Terrified that she had come face to face with the son of Sam and that he looked right at her, it took her four days before she found the courage to call police. But when she did and informed them of the car getting ticketed, and she remembered it being a light-colored Ford, it was the first solid lead that they had regarding the killer. Detective Falatico, along with another detective, aptly named James Justice, it sounds the same, but it's spelled differently, they began pouring through every car ticketed that night in Bath Beach. Looking back, for someone as careful and organized as Berkowitz had been, the fact that he used his own car as the getaway vehicle for every shooting seems strange and short-sighted. Plus, the fact that his car was properly registered the whole time was incredibly dangerous for someone committing the types of crimes that he was committing. Anyone who happened to catch a glimpse of his license plate could have ended the killing spree with a phone call. But David remained disciplined until he didn't. First, he chose to go to Brooklyn. Then he chose Bath Beach. Then, inexplicably, he targeted a blonde-headed victim, his first and only, before making his biggest blunder of all. He parked illegally. It wouldn't take long before Detectives Falatico and Justice found the needle in the haystack that would break the case wide open. A parking ticket. A paid parking ticket issued to a car registered to a Yonkers address. The ticket was written at 2.30 in the morning on August 31st, 1977 by Officer Michael Cataneo. Why, Falatico wondered, would someone from Yonkers, 25 miles away, be in Bath Beach in the middle of the night? They decided to find out. On August 9th, Officer Justice called the Yonkers Police Department and informed dispatch that they were interested in interviewing Yonkers resident David Richard Berkowitz. In an incredibly strange twist of fate, the person on the desk who caught the call was a civilian employee and a Yonkers local by the name of Wheat Carr. Wheat, if you remember from an earlier episode, was the sister of the Carr brothers who happened to live next door to Berkowitz. When Wheat heard the name Berkowitz, she told Detective Justice he was her neighbor, that he was friends with her brothers, and that he was even suspected of shooting their dog. An incident that greatly upset her father, Sam. Detective Justice, being fully briefed on all the information in the Son of Sam letters, heard the name Sam, and along with the rather disturbing description of Berkowitz's character, gave Justice the familiar police hunch that they had found their guy. In the end, a parking ticket proved to be the undoing for Berkowitz. Here's Robert Hager with more of the story. It was Berkowitz's car that led police to him. It had been ticketed for being parked by a fire hydrant on the night of the most recent murder, just a few blocks from the murder scene. Routinely following up the ticket, police found the car in... The next evening, August 10th, 1977, Detective Falatico, along with another officer, found Berkowitz's yellow Ford Galaxy parked in front of his building at 35 Pine Street. They called for backup, unmarked backup, as they didn't want to alert Berkowitz to a massive police presence. Falatico peered into the Ford Galaxy and saw the butt end of a rifle on the floor of the back seat. In his mind, that was enough to search the car. And there was a brown paper bag in the front seat that contained the Charter Arms 44 caliber revolver. They knew they had their man. Now, it was only a question of how to take him into custody. 
They weren't interested in an armed conflict in a narrow hallway. That was way too unpredictable. So they decided to wait outside. And it wouldn't be a long wait. A resident of the building, not Berkowitz, walked out and Falatico approached him with a question. You know a guy named David Berkowitz lives on the seventh floor? He did. Falatico flashed his badge and asked the man to sit with him until Berkowitz came out so he could be positively identified. At approximately 10 p.m., Berkowitz emerged from 35 Pine Street, ready for the evening's hunt, or maybe a massacre at a disco on Long Island. As he got to his car, Falatico appeared and put his service revolver to Berkowitz's head. Don't move until I tell you to move. David replied, You got me. Who have I got? asked Falatico. You've got the son of Sam. From the NBC News Center in New York. Good evening. David Berkowitz, 24, spent his days sorting letters in the post office, so meek and mild and quiet nobody ever noticed him, and spent his nights, the police say, roaming the streets of New York City with a 44 revolver, shooting young people and killing six of them. He has been arrested, and tonight he is in a mental hospital. He had terrorized the city for 13 months. When they brought him in, a crowd gathered on the sidewalk demanding his life. Here are two reports. Berkowitz was arrested and processed while his apartment was searched for evidence. And boy, did they find evidence. Satanic symbols spray-painted on his walls, threatening letters to Inspector Dowd of the Omega Task Force. Journals detailing a history of arson attacks across the city. Basically everything they would need to prosecute the son of Sam. Police were jubilant. Just after midnight, about two hours after the arrest, they displayed the 44 caliber pistol they said they found in Berkowitz's car. They said lab tests indicated it was the gun used in the killings. They found a folder in Berkowitz's apartment with a poem written on it in handwriting that matched earlier letters from the killer. They found hundreds of rounds of ammunition and two more guns, including a 45 caliber machine gun detectives said Berkowitz planned to use in his next attack, which they said was planned for a Long Island discotheque. In the end, it was something as simple as this $25 parking ticket that led police to Berkowitz. Chief of Detectives John Keenan tells what happened. David Berkowitz came out of his apartment house, entered the car, was about to start the car when he was apprehended. He was advised of his rights. And he resisted. Advised that he was under arrest, advised of his rights. No, he was, uh, he was re resigned to uh, what appeared to be his fate. Did he make any he made admissions? A, he made a statement along, well, you got me. Uh, I, I want to be careful not to say anything which will prejudice a prosecution. So I'll, I'll just say that, uh, that he made admissions. The next morning, August 11th, Chief John Keenan ran the interrogation, which quickly turned into a confession and an expressed interest in pleading guilty. Berkowitz gave detailed accounts of all the attacks over the previous nearly 13 months, things that only the shooter could possibly know. He confirmed that he took his nickname from his neighbor, Sam Carr, the evil man described in his first letter to police, and that Sam was actually the 6,000-year-old demon who chose to communicate with David through the dog, Harvey. The obvious reason for David trying to kill the dog four months earlier. A desperate attempt to end the demon's thirst for murder and control over David to do his bidding. The murder of Stacy Moskowitz was still very much in the press when it was announced that her killer, the son of Sam, had been captured at last. Five days after Berkowitz was arrested, Elvis Presley was found dead at his home in Memphis, Tennessee, and the son of Sam murders disappeared from the news as tributes poured in from around the globe mourning the death of the king of rock and roll. For a city that was paralyzed with fear and uncertainty for more than a year, New Yorkers once again showed their remarkable capacity to dust themselves off and get on with their lives.
But just because the public moved on and the news cycle found new areas to focus on doesn't mean the wheels of justice stopped turning. Behind the scenes, an oft-fought battle was quietly playing out that would determine the ultimate fate of David Berkowitz. That battle was between those seeking justice and those seeking to protect the mentally and emotionally disturbed. Could an insanity plea potentially allow the son of Sam to escape accountability, to escape the reckoning that a city was calling for, was demanding? We check in again with retired FBI agent Ken Lanning as he breaks down the opposing sides fighting for Berkowitz. When somebody begins to tell some therapist that he was picked on, he was bullied when he was a kid, how do you know he was bullied? And what I discovered or what we discovered is one of the difference between the kind of research we were doing is we had the law enforcement bias. Now, what's the law enforcement bias? That's a term that I use and other people use to refer to the fact that most law enforcement people, because of their background and experience, when they talk to people, particularly potential offenders, they assume everybody's lying unless they know otherwise. We just assume people are lying and you don't automatically believe what they tell you. And so, but mental health professionals, what I discovered, have the therapeutic bias. And what's the therapeutic bias? They tend to believe everybody's telling the truth unless they know otherwise. When you describe yourself as a victim, it's amazing how much people are willing to forgive you of and not hold you responsible for because you were, quote unquote, a victim yourself. Less than a year later, after three separate mental health evaluations, David Berkowitz was found competent to stand trial. His lawyers urged him nonetheless to enter an insanity plea, but Berkowitz refused. On May 8, 1978, he pleaded guilty to all the shootings. Two weeks later, at his sentencing hearing, he attempted suicide by trying to jump out a window on the seventh floor of the courthouse. When his attempt was thwarted, he seemed to fall into a psychotic fit, screaming about how his victims were all whores and that he would kill them again if he could. Every one of them. This event triggered an additional court-ordered psychiatric evaluation, which found that, again, Berkowitz was competent to receive sentencing. On June 12, 1978, David Berkowitz was condemned to six consecutive life sentences. The terms of his plea, however, despite strenuous objections from the prosecution, allowed Berkowitz to be eligible for parole after serving just 25 years. He was sent to the Attica Supermax prison in upstate New York. After years of incarceration, David Berkowitz would claim despite having converted while still in the military, that he'd become a Christian. He embraced his faith with all the zealotry of a convert and further would change his name from the son of Sam to the son of Hope. Seriously, he would fully accept responsibility for his crimes and resign himself to life in prison where he could find a constant supply of lost souls that needed to be introduced to the love of Jesus. In 2002, when he first faced the possibility of parole, Berkowitz wrote a letter to then-governor of New York, George Pataki. The rambling missive finally focused on a simple request. No parole. Ever. Dear Governor Pataki, I wish to share my thoughts about parole. I am disappointed that there is even going to be a hearing. I know that the sentencing laws require a hearing to be held in June, a date which was set 25 years ago. But the fact is, I have absolutely no interest in parole. Frankly, I can give you no good reason why I should even be considered for parole. I can, however, give you many reasons why I should not be. The loss of six lives and the wounding of even more are reasons enough for the latter. Sir, it is so tragic and regrettable that the families of my victims 
have to go through more suffering. Right now, they are filled with anger, anxiety, and pain because they think I'm trying hard to get out of prison, but this is simply not true. Governor Pataki, these people have nothing to worry about. For if and when I go to this hearing, it will only be to show respect for the parole board, to apologize and take responsibility for my criminal actions and to basically tell them what I am telling you now, that I do not deserve parole. Thank you, Your Honor, for taking the time to read my letter. I hope it has brought you some clarity to the matter. I pray dearly that those families will be able to have some peace and closure very soon. Respectfully, David Berkowitz. David Berkowitz is currently incarcerated in the Shawangunk Correctional Facility in Ulster County in southwestern New York. He's 70 years old. His next parole hearing is scheduled for May of 2024. Thanks for listening to The Devil Within, A Season in Hell. Make sure you're following The Devil Within for bonus episodes that will examine the aftermath of the Son of Sam murders, as well as weekly episodes throughout the year featuring stories of possession, unsolved murders, satanic ritual, urban myths, and anything else you can think of that might have been overlooked, ignored, or explained away for reasons no one can fully understand. I hope you enjoyed the season and I look forward to spending more time with you each week. For The Devil Within, I'm Brandon Ward. The Devil Within, A Season in Hell is a Cloud 10 Media production recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Ward. Executive produced by Sim Sartre. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.